1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, I'm reading from the ESV, which says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. You may be seated. Father, we do pray that you would help us this morning as we pray every Sunday. Enlighten our minds, animate our hearts, refresh our spirits through your holy word. Amen. A couple in their uh, mid-90s were both starting to have trouble remembering things. During a checkup, the doctor tells them that they're physically okay, but they might want to start writing things down to help them remember. So later that night, while watching TV, the old man gets up from his chair and he says to his dear bride, you want anything while I'm in the kitchen? And she asks, will you get me a bowl of ice cream? And she says, you might want to write that down, you might forget. And he goes, oh no, I, I won't forget, don't worry. I don't, I don't need to write it down. And she says, well, I would also like some strawberries with that. You should write that down. He says, no, no, I don't need to write it down. I'll remember, ice cream, strawberries. And he says, and if you wouldn't mind, some whipped cream as well. That's a lot, so you should probably write it down. And he's he getting a little irritated. He says, no, I don't need to write it down. I can remember. Ice cream, strawberries, whipped cream. That's simple. About 20 minutes later, he returns from the kitchen and hands his wife a plate of bacon and eggs. <laughs> She stares at the plate for a moment, and she then asks, where's my toast? (laughs) Sometimes we're forgetful and need reminders. We don't always remember the things we should, and that is why Paul ends his letter with a reminder as he's getting towards the end of 1 Corinthians, he's taught them all sorts of things. He's touched on all sorts of topics. He's talked about divisions in the church. He's talked about lawsuits. He's talked about sexual immorality. He's talked about marriage and divorce. He's talked about idolatry, eating food sacrificed to idols. He's talked about spiritual gifts, the place of love in the church. And now as it all kind of wraps up, he wants to give one last reminder of what is most important and the hope that they have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the resurrection that is our hope in the end. So this 
word comes to the church in Corinth and it comes to us as a reminder, as a matter of first importance. For some of us, this is old news. We've believed it for a while. Maybe for some, if you don't believe, this is new news. But for all, it's good news. And Paul wants us to have our knowledge of this gospel, our knowledge of the good news that we proclaim. He wants us to be refreshed and refined in our thinking. So to guide us through these 11 verses, I'll ask the question, what must we know about the gospel we proclaim? Paul wants to give a reminder about the gospel and what it means for us and what it is. So we ask, what must we know about the gospel we proclaim? What are the reminders that we need? Of course, we know the word gospel means good news. That in itself is important. This gospel is an announcement. It's a report. It's a declaration, a proclamation. And this is what makes Christianity distinct from any other religion, any other religion that is based on religious practice, religious observance, based upon ritual, based upon things we do to earn favor with God. The gospel is not a series of steps that we might partake in that can help us achieve religiosity or achieve the affection of God. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is not a series of steps to perform. The gospel is a proclamation of what has already been done. It's an announcement, a report. Not, here's what you must do, but here's what Christ has done. And that is the center, the foundation of our faith. It is not centered on something we do, but centered on something that Christ has done for us. So it makes it good news. So as we go through these 11 verses, we'll have our minds sharpened on what God has done through Christ. What must we know about the gospel we proclaim? First, we need to know that it is essential for our salvation. That's what verses 1 and 2 tell us. The gospel is essential for our salvation. It is what our salvation rests on. Again, it doesn't rest on, our salvation doesn't rest on what we do, but rests on what we believe, what we put our faith in, what we trust in. The gospel is essential for our salvation. Look at verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, when it says brothers, that's a way of saying brothers and sisters. He's not only talking to men in the room, but men and women. He says, Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul gives us a reminder of the gospel he preached that they received. The Corinthian church received the message and believed it. I don't want to pass by that too quickly because that's crucial. It's important. Our faith is a faith. It's something we affirm. It's something we believe. It's something we trust in. It's important because the spirit of our day is not to believe. Russ mentioned political ads earlier in the service and how thankful we are that those will soon pass, at least for a time being. 
But as we are in the midst of election season, which seems to never end, we're in the midst of election season, and we have political ads all over the place, and, and our politicians and leaders train us not to trust in anything. That other person said this, they're a liar. And the whole political discourse is an exercise in skepticism and cynicism, mudslinging and mistrust, and we are so accustomed to that, we just expect this, we anticipate. We don't even anticipate that our leaders will tell us the truth anymore. The spirit of our day that we are training our young people in is one of skepticism. I think we've trained our whole culture not to believe in anything. I think our, our younger people know this, I'm not going to speak totally on behalf of them, but they live in an online world of social media and they know we, we just don't really believe in anything here. We know this whole environment's kind of fake. We know it's not really authentic. We know the, the relationships aren't really real. But it's just the world we live in, and we just accept that as a matter of course. We know that every company is really just trying to monopolize our time and money and energy. We know that we just, we just live with it because there is no other alternative. Our day is one in which uh, everything is inauthentic. Everything is sold to us. Nobody is telling the truth, and we just don't believe anybody. And that bleeds into religion as well. All those religious people, churches, institutions, they're just there to control you. They just want power and they just want to monopolize your behavior and cram their ethics down your throat. So we don't believe in anybody or anything. And, and that has led to the kind of modern deconstruction movement. If you, I don't know if you've heard this or the term ex-evangelicals become a thing. Where evangelicals grew up in the church, it's not popular. We're deconstructing our faith. We're throwing it all away because as we know, we cannot trust in anything anymore, especially not what they taught us in church when we grew up. We as a culture are really good at tearing everything down, really good at not believing and not trusting in anything. So it's important to realize that actually the center of our faith is believing in something, affirming something. We trust in, we positively affirm the good news. Our faith is founded on belief and trust. In fact, we are saved by this good news. If we hold on to it, so long as we hold fast to the end, we are saved by this. It's not just about whether you start out living a good life. It's all about whether you end holding on to the good news. From beginning to end, the Christian faith is affirmation of a belief and centered on a good news report. It is not centered on works we do. We are not saved by our efforts. We are not saved by our religious practices. We are saved by a truth we believe in. Wasn't that the experience of the thief on the cross? You know the story? Jesus was not hanged alone. He was put on a cross between two criminals, two thieves, who were absolutely guilty. While Jesus was innocent, they were guilty of their crimes. And they started out mocking Jesus. But one, by God's miraculous grace, believed. He believed that this Jesus was the Son of God, was the Messiah. 
And what does Jesus say to him? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Eternal life was granted to that thief on the cross that day. Why? Did he have time to accumulate good works? Did he have time to give his money to the poor? Did he have time to serve others in the church? Did he spend a lot of energy on social causes? Did he do anything to earn God's favor by religious activity? No. He was guilty until all of a sudden he was forgiven. Simply by faith. By believing Jesus was the Messiah. It's what I read earlier in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There is no Christian alive who can boast in their salvation. All of us saved by faith. And again, that's contrary to how we naturally think, because everything in life trains us to earn it. All through school, we are trained, get good grades so that you can earn your place in college, do extracurricular activities, participate in sports or band or other things so that you can earn your scholarship, so that you can go to college and then earn a job or further education. And that you work hard in your job so that you can earn your paycheck and earn your pay, so you can provide your family that you earned through your relational efforts and that you invested in them. And everything about our lives is built on this metric of earning it. And that's not all bad. It's good to work hard. But it does mean that when we think about our faith, we have to flip our minds a little bit because... Our faith is something that is given to us. It is an absolute gift. It's not something we can earn by our good works. There's no amount of money you can pay that merits eternal life. I can't pay my mortgage with monopoly money. As much as I would love to. Why? Because no infinite amount of paper can pay for that home. It doesn't add up. In the same way, there is no amount of good thing you can do, no amount of religious works that you can do that earns eternal life with God. That is a gift so big, so good, so perfect, so eternal, that you can't possibly do anything to earn that. Most of our world thinks that to have a good afterlife, you have to live a good life. But that math doesn't add up. What amount of good works can you do to earn eternal life? You can. It has to be given as a gift. Life with God can only be given as a gift, and because it is a gift, it can only be received by faith. And faith not only saves us, but faith keeps us. We are maintained by faith. Not just in the beginning, but all the way through. Paul says, I preach to you which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. Not just were saved, but are being saved by this gospel. We keep being saved by holding on to the good news. We don't start out in faith, 
believe the good news, and then gut it out the rest of the way by effort. We don't keep ourselves in God's good favor just by our efforts and hard work. We are held on to, we are maintained in the Christian life by faith in the gospel. And whenever we start to deviate from that, we start to think that we're justified by our works or by our efforts, that it's our good religiosity, our good Christianity that earns our way with God. We stop relying on God. We start, start thinking we can save ourselves, that we're good enough. And we drift further from the grace of God. Either in total despair, because we realize we're not good enough, or pride, because we think we are. Either way, it's a rejection of this simple truth that God saves us and we are kept by his grace. Not only were we saved by it, but we are being saved by this good news. Well, what exactly is the good news that we believe? And that's where Paul turns to next, verses 3 through 8. Here is an explanation of the gospel. There are a number of explanations of the gospel throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament. This is one of them. If you want to know what is the gospel, here's one place you can turn. If you want to share your faith with a friend and say, what is it that Christians believe? This is a place you can turn, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, which explains the good news that we believe. This is what our hope is centered in. And what we find is that the gospel is centered on Jesus' death and resurrection. It is centered on Jesus' death and resurrection. The gospel is all about what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul delivered to the Corinthians what was given to him. He says it's of first importance. And I don't know if you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about first order, second order, third order doctrines. There are some truths of the Christian faith that are less important than others. So there's third order doctrines, which are things we can have fun debates over, but need not divide us. And and we can have debates over that. Then there are first-order doctrines, which are the, the core of our Christian faith, the matters of most importance, the things that all Christians must believe. And here is one of those things. This is a matter of first importance. This is essential to our Christian faith, something that we cannot be divided on, and that is this, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a first-order doctrine, a matter of first importance. And Paul describes it in four actions. Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised, and then he appeared to many people. Why did Christ die? It's an important question. because All sorts of people can affirm that Jesus died. That may or may not make you a Christian. All sorts of historians even historians at the time of Jesus, who will affirm, yeah, there was this guy named Jesus that he died on the cross. History will tell you that that happened. But that doesn't tell you why that happened. The important thing is, why did Christ die? For what purpose? He died for our sins. It's not only that he died, it's why he died. We've talked about being saved. 
What are we saved from? Romans 5.9 tells us. There Paul says we are justified by the blood of Jesus and we are saved by him from the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, Jesus delivers us from the wrath of God. We are saved from God's judgment upon sin. Jesus died for our sins that we should have been punished for. As many of you know, I said it many times before, I, I played hockey growing up, and I was a goaltender in hockey. And I, I probably shared this illustration before, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself. But one of the wonderful things about being a goalie in hockey is you did not have to serve your own penalties. So, if, for example, I used my stick to hit somebody else, and I never would have done this, I was a good Christian boy all the way through, but if, if for some reason I hit somebody with my stick and the ref saw it and called me for a slashing, there would be a two-minute penalty, but I would not go serve it. Why? Well, because you can't just take the goaltender out of the net. But justice still had to be maintained. There had to still be a penalty served. So what would happen? One of my very altruistic and gracious other teammates on the ice, they would go serve the penalty for me. And they'd spend two minutes in the penalty box. Which is a wonderful illustration of the cross. Justice had to be maintained. In order for God to be just, in order for him to be righteous, you couldn't just let penalties go or else there would be no justice in order in the world. We can't just let kill a murder and all sorts of sins just happen and then for them not to be punished. That would be an unjust, ungodly world. Justice has to be maintained. Okay, if justice has to be maintained, how are we going to live? Well, somebody has to take the penalty for us. That somebody of Jesus Christ, and it's exactly what he's done on the cross. He paid for our sins. He took on the wrath of God in our place that was due to us. Paul says that Jesus did this in accordance with the Old Testament. He may have been thinking of Isaiah 53, which says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our iniquity has been laid on Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of the hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. That is the good news. We do not pay for our sins if we are in Christ because Christ has done it for us. We are no longer under the judgment of God. And when he died, he really died. Not a fake death, but a real death. There was a, a news report that somehow came across my feed. Something that happened in Denver this last week. And the headline of the report reads, Denver Fire Lieutenant Suspended, Demoted, After Woman Declared Dead While She Was Still Alive. We call that a whoops. Apparently a fire lieutenant made a bit of a mistake in going to assess a situation check on a woman, he made the crucial error of declaring her, declaring her dead while, in fact, she was alive. That is not what happened with Jesus. When the world and when history declared him dead, he was actually dead. 
That's what the burial proves. He didn't just fake it. He wasn't just swooning. He didn't just get tired for a few moments and then rebound. He was dead, dead, properly dead, real dead, like wrapped up in cloths, placed in a tomb, stone rolled over it, buried on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, dead, dead. And then he didn't stay dead. The story ends well. Sometimes when we're watching movies with our kids, there'll be tense parts or scary parts. And we often remind them, don't worry, this will end well. We're watching Disney. Like, it's not going to be a twist bad ending that's just going to leave us depressed. There's always a happy ending to this story. And that is the way the world works. That is the way Christ's death works. God has not written the tragedy into the earth. God has written the story of the earth with a happy ending in the end, that it will end well. The story of all creation, the story of our lives in Christ, and the story of Christ himself is not one that ends on a negative note. It will end in resurrection forevermore. It ends happily. That is the story God is writing. That is what happened with Jesus' death. It ends in resurrection. He was raised. Now here's something important about that word, was raised, and this is just for you... Grammar nerds for a moment. The verbs in this section, he died, was buried, and then the verbs will come up, he appeared. All those verbs are in a certain tense known as the aorist. The aorist tense is a tense used for verbs that are talking about completed action that is done. Completed action done at one point in time. So he died. Completed action. He's buried. Completed action done. He appeared. But the verb for was raised is different. It's a different tense. The verb for was raised is a perfect tense. What is the perfect tense? That talks about an action that happened and is still going on. Or... Something that happened with ongoing results. And do you understand what that means? When it says he was raised, it was not something that only happened in the past. It's he was raised and is still raised. Which is why we say at Easter, he is risen. Not he was risen. He is risen. Because Jesus is alive and he is reigning. And the resurrection wasn't just a past thing. It's an ongoing and forever thing. Jesus was raised and is still raised. The story ends well because this is the story forevermore that Jesus is alive and he has done something that we could never do. Humans are capable of all sorts of incredible things. We can build cities in a desert. We have cured diseases. We have walked on the moon. We have split the atom. We have run four-minute miles. Not me, but somebody has done this. But there's one thing humans could never do. And that is stop death. Defeat death. We, as a collective humanity, are like the Israelite army looking at Goliath, saying we cannot defeat that. We have no champion who can defeat that giant force. We have nobody who can defeat death. And then all of a sudden, God's chosen king comes along and says, I can conquer that enemy. 
Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. He has defeated the great enemy, death. And he remains alive forevermore. And that changes everything for us, that resurrection. Did Jesus rise from the grave? It's one of the central questions of our Christian faith. Did that actually happen? If Jesus was a good teacher, if Jesus was a miracle worker, and that alone, he might not really be all that significant for us. But if he actually rose from the grave and defeated death, then that's something that should change all of our lives. So if you're not a Christian this morning, I would ask you to investigate, did this happen? And just think about this. If Jesus rose from the grave, was dead, and then became alive, what would that mean for all of us? There was a guy who rose from the grave. That should change everything. Our whole world should revolve around him. You might say, well, how do we know he rose from the grave? Well, just as the burial was proof of his death, the appearances were proof of his resurrection. He didn't rise from the grave and then nobody saw it. Or there were just like rumors about it. Jesus rose from the grave and many saw him. He appeared to Peter, the leader of the disciples. He appeared to the twelve, the whole group of disciples. He appeared to 500 people at one time. And Paul says, you can still talk to some of these people. Because when he's writing the letter to the Corinthians, many of those people were still alive. And Paul said, go ahead and talk to them. I'm not making this up. This wasn't a mass hallucination. This is something that people saw. You can talk to those people. They're still alive. Some have fallen asleep, which means some have died, but they'll wake up. Jesus appeared to James, his own brother, the rest of the apostles, and lastly, he appeared to Paul. Paul's point in all this is, this is not a myth, a fable, some vision that a couple people had in a mystic experience. Jesus actually appeared to his closest followers and friends, to some who doubted him like Thomas, to masses of people. He appeared to his brother. He appeared to his enemy, Paul. They saw the risen Jesus. Verses 3 through 8 describe the good news. Now think about verses 3 through 8. What are they about? Do you see yourself in verses 3 through 8? You can look. Do you see your actions listed out in verses 3 through 8? Anything you've done in verses 3 through 8? No. The good news has nothing to do with what you did. The good news is not about your actions at all. The good news is about everything that Jesus did. The good news is centered on Jesus' death and his resurrection. That's why it's good news is because it was all about what Jesus did. And we are saved, again, not by what we do or what we have done. We are saved by what Jesus did. And it is good news because it means 
You don't have to get yourself better to believe this. You don't have to get cleaned up to be a Christian. You don't have to first get everything in order and make sure your life is perfect before you are a believer in the good news because the good news is not dependent upon anything that you have done. The good news will maintain to be and will always be good news despite whatever you've done. The good news does not change based upon your actions or your sins or your righteousness. The good news is the good news because it's always and forever about what Jesus has done. So you might not believe in yourself sometimes. That's fine. God doesn't actually ask you to believe in yourself. God asks you to believe in Jesus because he's the one who has done the work on your behalf. He has died and resurrected. The good news is about him, not about you, which means that anybody, no matter your past, no matter what you've done, you can believe in this and be saved. And I would add, anybody can then be used by God to teach and proclaim this good news, which is exactly what Paul is saying in verses 9 through 11. The good news is centered on Jesus' death and resurrection. Then lastly, it is empowered by God's grace. Very quickly, we'll go through these verses. The good news is empowered by God's grace, which Paul teaches from his own experience as an apostle. Verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, but was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Paul had an incredibly fruitful and successful ministry. He's going to say in this verse, he worked harder than any of the apostles. And he's not bragging there. He's just stating the reality of the fact that he was used by God, maybe more so than anybody else in Christian history besides Jesus himself, Paul was used by God. Paul went through incredible persecution, shipwrecked, imprisoned, whipped, beaten, and finally executed for his faith. Paul went on several missionary journeys across the Mediterranean and the known world, preaching the gospel, planted at least 14 churches that we know of, and he wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books. Paul was incredibly fruitful in his ministry. And was that because he was awesome? It was because Paul was so deserving of all that. No. It was only by God's grace. What was Paul doing when Jesus appeared to him? He was persecuting the church. He was putting Christians in prison. He was having Christians killed. He oversaw the death of Stephen. Paul speaks of himself as one untimely born in verse 8. The word there for you, untimely, is actually a word that is used for miscarriage or abortion. It's a self-deprecating term he uses. I, I was born abnormally. What he's saying is, when I came to Christ, I, I was outside of the normal course of things. I was the last of the apostles. One of the last ones to see Jesus. I was going in a wrong way, and yet God called me and made me an apostle. Why? Because God loves me. And Paul was fruitful. How? By grace alone. All of Paul's ministry, only done by God's grace. 
It is not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He takes no credit for his fruitfulness. In the 1500s, there was something called the Protestant Reformation. You may have heard of this. We celebrated it last week at Trunk or Treat. You actually don't know this. You thought it was about Halloween, but actually that was a Reformation party. Reformation Day is the same time as Halloween. But it celebrates the Protestant Reformation, which was when really the Word of God got translated and put back into the people's hands. And our faith became centered on God's Word and as opposed to just a, a Roman Catholic system and people read scriptures for themselves, and it's a recovery of the gospel, recovery of the, the word of God, a recovery of personal belief and faith in scripture and God's word. And of course, it was spearheaded, or one of the most prominent figures in the Protestant Reformation was a man by the name of Martin Luther. Luther challenged teaching the church, taught salvation by faith alone, was responsible for getting the word of God into people's hands. And at one point he commented on how he was able to do all of this. How did this happen, this reformation that was sweeping across Europe? And Luther said this, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then when I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friend Philip of Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word of God did it all. In short, I slept and drank, opened up the word, God did the rest. God did all of it. And that is encouragement for any one of us. Do you want to be used by God? And I'm talking to Christians here specifically. Those of you who claim Christ, do you want to be used by God to reach neighbors, to reach friends with the gospel? Do you want to be an evangelist? Do you have a heart for others coming to know the Lord? Do you have a heart for your kids coming to know the Lord? Here's my encouragement to you. You don't need training. You don't need to be a great rhetorician. You don't need classes in apologetics. Honestly, you don't need classes in evangelism. We can offer those. We can, we can show you how to go through gospel tracts. But none of that is needed. All you have to do Speak the gospel. The rest is God's work. It is all by God's grace. Where is the power in salvation? It is not in your ability to speak it. Romans 1.16 I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What is the power for salvation? Not you, not me, not our abilities. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. You don't need training. You just need the gospel. Training might help. might be good. Who doesn't want to be trained more? But what you really need and all you need is God's grace and his word to speak and proclaim. And any one of us can be used mightily by God by his grace. If he's going to raise dead souls, he's going to have to do it by his power and not ours. That's my encouragement for those of you who are Christians. And if you're not a Christian, 
I would just want you to know the good news of Jesus can save you. You can be forgiven because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Your guilt and shame and worry can be removed because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Your enemy, death, has been defeated in his resurrection. No matter how terrible your background, God can save you and use you to bring life to others. He can use any one of us. That's what we must know about the gospel. It is essential for our salvation. It is centered on Jesus' death and resurrection. It is empowered by God's grace. Anyone can receive it. Anyone can have salvation. Anyone can proclaim it. Would you pray with me? Father, help us to believe this morning. For those of us who think that we've gone beyond somehow this good news, help it to be a reminder. And so often we carry worry, anxiety, uh, guilt, despair, restlessness with us thinking that we, by our efforts, can make all things well. We are reminded, it is your grace that saves us, it is your grace that keeps us, it is your grace that empowers us. So in all things, let us just come back to you and rest in your grace. And for those of us who have never rested in your grace, Lord, I pray now be the day. We're restless souls. We find life in your Son. Lord, save us all and keep us by your grace in your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.